0: Hi, I'm Len App from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Tony Robinson. Based in Michigan, Tony is a senior security analyst at Hurricane Labs, a Cleveland-based security services provider. In addition to his duties as an analyst focusing on network security monitoring, which I'm going to be asking him about a bit shortly, um, he also plays a role recommending new technologies in providing threat intelligence data to clients and a number of other things. Tony is the author of the book, Building Virtual Machine Labs, a Hands-On Guide. His book teaches you everything there is to know about building and maintaining a virtual lab environment, which is something I'll also be asking him about. Um, Using today's most popular hypervisors, something else I'll be asking about. Um, You can read Tony's blog posts at hurricanelabs.com slash blog slash author slash Tony-Robinson, and I'll put a link uh, in the transcript for that. Um, I should also say that under normal circumstances, you can follow Tony on Twitter at DA underscore 667, though he's currently taking a break Twitter until Thanksgiving which sounds like a good idea to me
1: Uh, yeah I just got family that's out of town and don't get to see them very often and not only that uh, we just we moved into this place in uh, June of this year and we're hosting family so I just want to make sure that you know I don't set anything on fire and make it make a mess for Thanksgiving
0: (laughs) (laughs) that sounds sounds like a really good idea Um, so thanks very much Tony for being on the on the front matter podcast
1: Um, Um, it's both an honor and a pleasure thank
0: you Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, um, so I was wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about how you first became interested in um, let's say you know computers and, and software
1: Well, um, my story goes back to high school you know a lot of people that I know in computers and information security they date their stuff back to you know when they were just going to grade school they had computers, they grew up with them. My story starts in high school. Uh, we had access to a computer my dad was a ford factory worker so our first computer was uh, given out through uh the ford program uh that happened at about the turn of the millennium where they were giving out uh heavily discounted pcs to um different ford families so we had a shared pc and i just got really curious about the internet i wanted to know how computers work i wanted to know how You know computers communicate over the internet and that kind of just sparked my passion from there and uh, I decided to go through the IT route I wasn't a terribly great programmer so I uh, opted to go through computer networking I did uh, some one of our schools that we were at or one of the schools I was at had a Cisco networking program and that kind of just springboarded me towards systems administration so I did that for a few years here in the state of Michigan and then st- stiffly by a twist of fate one day I go to a bookstore and I find a magazine called 2600 the hacker quarterly and that kind of gets me towards information security and you know, I figured out that uh, information security is actually a passion for a lot of people and that it's a job function that's available out there and you know, there are people that get paid to break into systems or defend systems on a day-to-day basis. And I was having a great time as a systems administrator, but I was really kind of curious about uh, security. So, um, I took a leap and ended up in Maryland working for Sourcefire pre-Cisco merger. Then from there, I, uh, worked for the NSA for a period of time. I, did a little bit of network security work. I'm not going to go too deep into that because don't need black helicopters over here or anything. But uh, I worked for them for a little while. I worked for a large power company securing the power grid, securing uh, enterprise users for uh, probably the second largest power company in the country. Um went back to Cisco for a little bit. They said, you know, we've seen what you've been doing. Like I, I had honeypot projects. I had talked at security conferences. I had written numerous blog posts and they liked what I had going on and they brought me back for a little while. And, you know, then we decided we wanted to come back to Michigan, me and my wife and, uh, hurricane labs was nice enough to bring me on. And they've been They've given me a ton of freedom and a ton of ability, which is, uh, you know, part of the reason why that book got written is because they gave me the freedom to do so. And that just kind of brings me here to today. So,
0: Yeah, thanks for that I've really good good account. Yeah, um, I've got no, a, no a, a, a few questions. Um, actually, one that I hadn't been intending to ask about, although it had kind of crossed my mind, was, um, so you grew up in Michigan. Um, yep. So your dad worked for Ford. Um, what was that like, being part of a, a you know, a kind of Detroit or I mean, Michigan, you know, auto industry.
1: Actually, we family. did grow up in Detroit. You so oh,
0: okay, okay, yeah. Um, so being, I mean, one of the things obviously a lot of people know about Detroit's story is how there was this period of decline for a while uh, in the auto industry and things like that. And I was wondering if if that affected you or your friends or your family in any particular way.
1: I mean, uh, so there's a misconception, you know, especially in the government and in other organizations that if you have a family or if you have a family who's working for uh, Ford Motor or the auto industry, that you have it pretty good. And, you know, things were pretty tight for us. So that's part of the reason why, uh, you know, I wasn't really introduced to computing until I was a teenager, is that money was a little bit tight. But, you know, we had family, we stuck together, and we kind of – we – helped each other out you know they're my parents are the main reason that i managed to get through college is because you know i i lived at home with them they let me do that i worked my tail feathers off and they supported me and they helped me get through it so you know money might have been a little bit tight a little bit tighter than we would have liked but we managed to make it work and you know um he retired a few years back uh he has about uh 27 years of experience at Ford wow wow mm-hmm. um yeah thanks for thanks for that and for clearing
0: up that that misconception that yeah i think some people kind of sometimes cynically or even sarcastically adopt towards the industry um speaking of studying in university um one of the themes of this podcast is uh or one of the questions that comes up all the time is um if you were to start over now and things do change very quickly, uh, in it, would you study computer science formally in university again? Or if someone were starting out now, would you recommend it?
1: Well, actually it's funny that you mentioned that I get this a lot on social media, on Twitter. I have a a lot of people every so often I'll say, um, if you want advice or if you want recommendations, I kind of do like a hands-off like career guidance kind of thing where people say, this is what I know. And, I ask them, where do you want to go? And I say, this is this is the path I think you should take. So um, in terms of like general IT background, um, the best thing I can say for people who want to get involved is that there are a ton of resources out there that weren't available before. Like there are... Um, resource, there are ways to get cheap hardware through um, companies that are trying to get rid of their old stuff, like uh, Server Monkey or Save My Server, or the North American um, Technology Exchange is one of them. So there's plenty of cheap hardware available out on the internet. Um, there are free training resources. Cyberry.it has a ton of resources out there if you're a dedicated self learner and you just don't have the money to work with. There are people who are recording their content and putting it out there for free. And you know, some of it might be based off of certifications that you may or may not be interested in. But the thing I would take away from that is that those certifications, you don't have to have them. They just kind of give you a foundational knowledge to build up your capabilities. Um, And one of the reasons why I wrote the virtualization book is another aspect of that is getting the hands-on experience, that it's really hard to get your foot in the door in IT and information security in general because people want experience. And if you say, I've built labs, I've done this, I've worked with this technology, or I've done computer security challenges and I networked at these conferences, both IT and security – It's really easy for you to build a network of peers that know you and know what your capabilities are and are willing to vouch for you. So, um, if there's anything I would do differently, is I would find out about conferences in the areas near me or um, any local security or IT gatherings and just make yourself known. You know, just make friends. And sometimes that's easier said than done because a lot of us computer types are introverts. So. Yeah, you know, sometimes it just uh, takes a little bit of breaking out of your shell, but it's very much so worth doing.
0: One thing I've heard people say sometimes is that even if um, you know uh, getting a formal degree isn't absolutely necessary for a career, and it obviously isn't, um, if you do want to work for some of the big companies, it can often be something of a requirement, like you know Google or, or Facebook or something like that. Is that true of government work as well?
1: Um, for government work, it's kind of a 50-50 split. If you have uh, some background in education – well, first off, if you have background in education, you're currently going to school. If you're fortunate enough, there are scholarship programs for service, especially for the Department of Defense and various other orgs where – whereby uh, you pledge to um, submit to five years uh, working for the federal government and they will pay back your student loans. So if you're going to school and you're thinking about it, it's a good way to get experience. It's a good way to get your foot in the door and also to have your student loan debt kind of managed. Um, Pretty important these days to get that managed. Exactly, and the other side of that is if uh, you have enough years of experience and you know going to work for the government is a passion it's something that you want to do like you want to you want to do the mission or you want to work for your country as a government and better their security standards or i t standards, then if you have enough years of experience and have you know can back it up on that piece of paper your resume, then more often than not they'll be happy to have you.
0: And Speaking of experience, actually, I have one question, uh, or uh, one, a few more. But um, uh, one particular question about it, which is, so what? What's your what's your day like working for Hurricane Labs as an as an analyst?
1: Um, a lot of the times, I have a lot of freedom to do practically whatever I want. You know, if that's um, playing around with uh, virtual machines, if that's developing training material. Um, like right now, I'm working with an individual by the name of Chris Sanders. He develop security training material and he's not associated with hurricane, but so long as I'm not working a critical case or something that isn't like waiting for my attention, um, they're letting me record training based off the book and you know, they don't have it's not a conflict of interest to them. They don't mind that I'm doing it, you know. So my days could be helping out the other security analyst in looking at an event. It could be communicating with customers and, you know, utilizing soft skills to explain what's going on with them or kind of handhold them as they need it. Um, I could be demoing new technology or trying to figure out uh, better ways to integrate some of the data or threat intelligence we have and better give it to our customers or have it uh, work out in their favor. So, it's kind of a it's a kind of a weird role where you know it's if you're familiar with Game of Thrones, I'm, it's like a Tyrion Lannister role in that I drink and I know things, and <laughs> I'm kind true. of have like an interesting advisory role, and it's a lot of fun, you know, because you know it, it, it just has a huge degree of trust, and I'm very thankful to have it. And
0: uh, you said a couple of words about you know critical and, and event. event. Um, and I guess I'm just curious about, you know, some people might, like myself to some extent, might have a kind of romantic notion about what it's like to be working in security every once in a while. I mean, do things happen like, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're, your own version of a red phone goes off and it's like, Tony, we need you right now. Someone's being attacked and, and, and we need to, you know, repel it.
1: Um, I mean, typically that kind of thing happens like whenever there's a new O-Day or Zero-Day vulnerability, a new vulnerability that uh, is out there and actively being exploited. It's, you know, what do we need to tell our customers? Um, how is this How is this going to affect them? What things do we need to look out for? What are our recommendations to make sure that you don't become a victim of this or this particular vulnerability or this particular piece of malware that just came out? Um, so... It's usually whenever something new comes out or some researcher drops uh, some new piece of malware or vulnerability that uh, things get spun in a high gear and I'm writing recommendations or I might be working with customers and explaining what needs to be done.
0: Um, one thing I'm really curious about is the relationship that um, you know security analysts might have with um, enterprises that they engage with. And I, what I mean by that is, is what's the attitude like from the enterprise side generally, and without necess- obviously, without necessarily referencing any specific client or even experience you've had? Um, what's your general sense of how, let's say, people in the executive, the C suites, like you know, executives, relate to security? Is it something that they treat like an annoyance? Is it something that they're not well versed in, but they do take seriously?
1: Well. Man, that's a, that's a heck of a question because I've seen all ends of the spectrum there. There have been C-suites that, you know, you have compliance requirements and security. If uh, any of these sound familiar, PCI, HIPAA, Sarbanes-Oxley, these are – Compliance requirements that you have to have certain security measures in place in order to do business, and some C-suite, some management see, well, it's a um, either we can accept the risk and we can accept the fines and it's business as normal, or it's we've been burned by this before and we need to take it a bit more seriously. So. Um, i 've seen both ends there, and sometimes it 's a bit frustrating when all they want to do is just accept the risk and just move forward and then other times it 's really refreshing when they realize you know this is customer data, this is private information that is that they 're liable for, and they realize the gravity of the situation that this is people 's lives that they have in their hands
0: um, that reminds me of one of the things i 've come across. Um, not so much in direct personal experience, but just reading around, which is that often you can find in some companies a um, a culture where, in the C-suite, there's actually it's actively promoted what that one should not have any domain-specific expertise, um, and it's one of the things I ask people about um, when it comes to basically IT-related matters is. It's maybe maybe if you're just shipping sort of you know toothpaste as opposed to shoelaces, you know you can adopt a kind of abstract relationship towards what you're doing, and just apply some kind of you know to put it in you know in a sort of derogatory way sort of business school models. Is that something that's actually not appropriate for a world where you know that has been eaten by software?
1: Well, in some aspects and in some ways, it is and it isn't. I I know that this is a lot of it depends kind of answers, and I apologize for that. But, uh, you know, since there's a a gray scale in our world today, it all runs down to threat profiles. And what I mean by a threat profile is how likely or how valuable is the data that you have how valuable are the resources that your company produces how much money do does your company make do you stand to lose um really depends on how seriously some companies are willing to take security i mean um in some cases you know if all you're doing is producing a yeah, if all you're doing is producing toothpaste, it might not seem like such a serious thing until, you know, hackers manage to get control of your industrial processes or the industrial controllers and can shoot toothpaste halfway across the the, uh, the production line and you have no idea why your toothpaste tubes are coming out empty and, you know, things are malfunctioning left, right, front, and center. Um, at the same time, you know... That might be a minor hiccup or an annoyance for a single um, for a single uh, facility whereas you know somebody else who is producing uh, let's say for instance let's uh, let's play around with uh, Stuxnet and say that you're at a nuclear facility and you're producing yellow cake uranium you know that is a very sensitive process and something where if hackers get control of your Um, Industrial control systems there can throw off the entire process, throw off, you know, could cause millions of dollars of damage, infinite uh, pushback, all sorts of issues where, you know, it's really hard to recover from those kinds of things, and the impact can be significant. So it's all dependent on your threat profile and how valuable the data is and processes and things that you produce actually are
0: yeah that um for those listening who perhaps haven't heard of Stuxnet or haven't um read about it in detail it's a fascinating story i I'll, I'll put a link to some to some there are many articles about it but i'll put a link to that uh in the in the transcript for this interview but yeah the um basically it, it it's as i understand it some government actors um yep. to really get into the details around how certain um uh, Devices worked in the production of, um, I guess, enriched uranium in, in Iranian nuclear facilities. Yep. And and it was, it was such an obscure hack that it took researchers a long time, as I understand, to figure it out. Um, it was,
1: it did all sorts of gritty of the
0: way the machines worked.
1: It was really fascinating because, you know, like you say, they required an in-depth knowledge of how those machines worked. And not only that, it actively hit itself. It did a bunch of fascinating things. And there was a ton of fallout because this malware that was targeted from one particular place just ended up spreading outside of that, you know, because of unforeseen circumstances, you know? Um
0: Speaking of potentially foreseen circumstances, you mentioned that you worked for an electric utility, um, and when I was preparing for this interview, I was reminded of um, how just in the recent past, um, the well-known broadcast journalist from the U.S., Ted Koppel, wrote a book called Lights Out. I don't know if you you heard about this. He was sort of making the rounds on the late-night talk shows and other things, talking about the vulnerability of, you know, the basic infrastructure, like electric grids, um, and the... uh, incredible cost there could be to society if, you know, something like, say, the electricity for like all of New York State or something like that were just turned off by hackers. Um, What's your, and so he was, he was, you know, sort of deliberately fear mongering. And I was wondering um, if that particular problem keeps you up at night. And if it doesn't, is there something else that does?
1: Well, it's uh, funny that you mentioned that um, there was an organization whose name escapes me. I'm going to have to find the name of the place, but it was an organization that is known for ensuring obscure things. And, like, they would ensure, like, a, if a supermodel had a really gorgeous pair of legs, they would ensure that. If uh, a singer had a wonderful voice, they would ensure that. And they had research to back up why particular things were as expensive as they were or, you know, to the market to say, we think it's worth this. Therefore the insurance value is this. And this organization, whose name still escapes me, I'm going to remember it later and it's going to drive me nuts, but they, um, it was asked of them, if you had to insure the, um, the Northern, the uh, North American power grid, What kind of a value? How could you put a value on that? And there was a ton of research that was put into it as to, you know, how much money would be lost if this portion of the country hypothetically lost power, if it was a major urban area, if there was um, major fallout and, you know, thinking about it, like thinking about all the damages and – all the costs and all the potential loss for life is really rather crazy. I mean, all we have to do is look at what happened in Puerto Rico recently to see that a catastrophic loss of power and infrastructure could you know, result in a massive loss of life, you know. There are aspects of a disaster where if you lose power, you typically don't think about it, you know, like life support systems in hospitals and things of that nature where they're relying on power in order to stay alive. So it's really interesting to think about how, how spy, or how cobweb delicate, like things like the power grid could truly be. And if somebody had, you know, access to those systems, how easy it would be to, plunge portions of the country or the entire country into chaos, you know, depending on what kind of access they've got. And, you know, I I know that that kind of sounds like fear mongering as well from my side. But uh, researchers from an organization, uh, Drago Security, they are really good at sussing out issues from, you know, security issues in the power grid and determining whether or not, you know, an issue in a power plant or a water treatment plant that happens someplace in the country, whether or not it was just an errant piece of malware that attacked a system or if it was actually orchestrated damage that happened. And, you know, nine times out of 10, at least right now, it's just malware happens to get on a system and there's no major impact. But, you know, that is something that keeps me up and keeps me wondering if somebody actually had a level of access to, do those kinds of things how bad could it possibly get you
0: know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um actually that for some reason reminds me one question i was really looking forward to asking you is um uh, mm-hmm. so using the term ai loosely as a lot of people do these days more like you know machine learning is often what they're referring to but what concerns are there in the security community around that so for example can uh could could a system, and perhaps this is something that already exists, but can you build something that can just kind of run infinite attacks against itself um, and innovate that way, and then suddenly you've got uh, an operator out there that there are no humans behind um, that can actually iterate attacks on its own?
1: Well, it's kind of funny because there was a... Um... DARPA Challenge at DEF CON, it was a year ago, where they had systems that were designed to both attack and defend one another. Like They had a set of AI and machine learning systems that they threw onto an enclosed network, air-gapped network on its own, and they brought them to Las Vegas, and it was a simulation on... How AI would find vulnerabilities and attack vulnerabilities, and it was just absolutely insane how fast these things work. However, um, you know, a lot of people are worried about artificial intelligence and machine learning and what it can mean. You know, in terms of automating attacks and automating security and things of that nature. Is that uh, a lot of these systems? They're not. I'm not going to say that they're signature based because they're not. But machine learning and AI were depend on having a set of data to learn from and a constant environment to where they're able to say this is normal and this is not and because you know data and computer networks and data systems change so frequently it's really hard to be able to train these AI and machine learning systems to be able to adapt to changes in the environment. So if you rename a file or if you change a directory from where it's running and you try running that same executable again, something that's machine learning or AI based might think that it's fine to leave it alone because, you know, um, I renamed PowerShell to Shell and moved it to one file, you know, to, from one part folder to another and suddenly everything is okay. I have never seen that before and I'm going to assume that it's all right because it's not in my data sets and I don't know what to do with it. So so we don't need to worry about um
0: security analysts being beaten the same way you know AlphaGo has cracked Go.
1: Uh I wouldn't say necessarily just because there's at least for the foreseeable future, you know, there's going to be a human aspect somebody that has to help train the machine, somebody I use this term lightly because it's kind of you know information security has a lot of acronyms and terms from the military but ai and machine learning is a quote-unquote force multiplier where you have somebody that is manning it and making sure that it's running properly but it can help you do more things you know it can help you look at more data but it needs somebody there to validate and give a thumbs up and say yep this is accurate or this is what i'm expecting or say hold the phones. Why are you doing it that way? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, one question I have is about the concept of red team and blue team. Which mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone listening who's uh, familiar with the security space knows all about what, what that is. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and about the nature of, is about the competitive aspect. Of
1: security. Uh, it is uh, rather competitive. Um, I will definitely say, and uh, for the most part, my career in both IT and security has primarily been Blue Team and, you know, sussing out the bad guy. Oh, right. Huh?
0: Okay. So, yeah. So I just wanted to ask if you could explain what Red Team is and what Blue Team is.
1: Oh, okay. All right. So to put it basically, you know, Blue Team are the protectors. They are the ones that are identify, you know, like – Identifying the vulnerabilities, patching the vulnerabilities, um, putting up the security systems or the layers of that security onion for an enterprise in order to protect it against attackers. Whereas the red team, they are the ones that are, uh, depending on what type of test you want done, um, they might have a limited scope or a limited range that they can attack, and their goal is to... See how far they can get and determine what access they can get within that scope. Or you could have a contract with a red team that could be um, complete adversary emulation, meaning they're going to use any tactics that a nation state actor or an actual hacker or bad guy in the, on the internet could use. So there's no holds barred. There's no that's not that's out of scope and you can't touch that. There's um, did I get in? Did I achieve my objectives and how did I get there? So uh, the red team is attack. I equate them to the sword and the blue team is the, is the fence and equating them to the shield.
0: And before I interrupted you, you were saying that um, you, uh, you, you found yourself being blue team for most of your career.
1: Yeah, I found myself blue team most of my career because um, it's kind of like a natural transition coming from an IT background and that uh, if you've done systems administration or network or computer networking or network administration, uh, a lot of the skill you know what you know how these systems are built, and you learn how to defend them, and you learn where the weak points are and what needs to be shored up. Um, that is to say, you know, the same can't be true can't also be true for a red teamer. You know, if you've done systems administration or network administration work. You know what the system, systems administrator mindset is. You know where they might be lazy. You know, they might um, reuse the same credentials uh, for a, a bunch of their systems on a network or they might uh, put all their credentials in one place on a network share or something. And if you know where to look, then you have the keys to the kingdom. So,
0: And is it conventional in these exercises for Blue Team's job to be complete when it's repelled an attack or does blue team go after red team or is
1: well sometimes it's funny in that um if the blue team's good enough they'll spot the red team and they'll just mess with them. They'll just uh you know say uh you got a shell on a system like nope I'm going to quarantine that or uh, by a shell I mean like a remote session on a computer. Um they're just going to kill that connection or so to kind of answer the question um Blue team isn't considered a failure if they weren't able to spot the red team. The goal is you know, the goal is for both sides to learn from one another. So if the red team couldn't get in, they ask what were you guys doing to block me and you know we'd say we were using this technology where we're using these things. We saw you trying to do this. So we just assumed that this was coming next or, um, the, the blue team might say, we never got an alert. We never saw anything. So how did you all get in? And that's when they produce the report and they say, here's all the things we did. Here's how we got from one system to another and, you know, produce the evidence that they got there. So both sides learn from one another. There's not really a, there isn't really a loser in these exercises.
0: And um, in, in real life, um, if a company, say, is being attacked, um, can, is it ethical for its analysts to go after the attackers? And I assume it is, but to, to, is there some limitation on that? Is, or, I mean, I just, I'm just curious about the real, like in the trenches, like, for example, is, do you want to perhaps not antagonize them and just kind of bat them away and become a boring target? Do you expose yourself by attacking them in return?
1: Well, um, it's interesting that you mentioned the uh, idea of attacking the real bad guys on the Internet, and that's something that um, a lot of companies want to do. However, it's like everything else, it's not really a black-and-white problem, especially when the bad guys can make it look like they're coming from another system or another network. It's real easy to – let's say you want to – you're, you're the bad guys you're party a and you want to attack party b um you can the bad guys could attack a separate party um party c and make it look like their attacks are coming from them so the other group you know the their actual target will say it's coming from those guys it's not coming from the attackers and they could try and attack them back and then you have a giant mess where you know they're attacking one another and You know, nobody really knows who started it. So a lot of the times when it comes to cyber attacks or compromises, um, if the attackers were successful, your job is to – it's almost like uh, looking at an investigation or a crime scene. There are digital forensics experts, incident response experts who go in there and – they collect all of the logs, all of the data off the systems. They collect as much as they can and try and determine how did this happen? How long have they been here? What data did they take? And all you can really do at that point is make recommendations to harden those systems or you know, harden their defensive posture to make it harder or you know make themselves less of an easy target or less low-hanging fruit for the bad guys to want to go towards.
0: And at what point? does law enforcement get involved in a, in a case of say an, an attack that's successful or even, or even just, you know, ongoing?
1: Uh, it really depends. Um, yeah, God, I keep I keep saying that a lot, but, okay.
0: uh, oh, no, it's a, it's a complex matter.
1: Um, uh, so it could depend on a number of factors, you know, is the, uh, is the target uh, um, something that contains a lot of personal identifying information, like credit card numbers, like social security numbers, date of birth, medical records? You know those things that are um, governed by regulatory compliance. If a target that is holding credit card numbers or cre- you know um, credit information gets breached, then the government's going to be all over that, saying what happened, why didn't your security controls work? why didn't any of this compliance that you're required to do uh, fix anything for you? I mean um, I know that Equifax is everybody's favorite punching bag these days, but uh, that's a perfect example is that uh, Equifax had hundreds of thousands of records and um, they're governed by a lot of compliance requirements because they have credit card information because they have practically they know everything about you. And then, they had such a massive breach, a massive failure in security posture that all of this data left, and they didn't know. And they didn't know for quite a while. It was uh somewhere around, uh, I want to say it was sixty to ninety days before they realized something was up. And you know, in terms of uh, attacker timelines, that's that's an eternity. So um, the government definitely, you know, if the if it involves regulatory compliance or anything that is regulated, uh, the government's all over it. If it's, uh, you know, mom and, or a, a mom and pop shop that, uh, you know, might not see a lot of business or might not be, uh, critical to, um, national infrastructure or anything of that nature, they might be a little bit more lax about that. So
0: yeah, that's really that's really interesting. Thanks for that. That answer. I was curious about just the the, the spectrum of activities and where they might get get touched by different um, law enforcement agencies and regulations and things like that.
1: You um, know, I could yeah. I could just tell you from my past, uh I'm not getting into too many details, but there was a uh, incident at one of the places I worked at where, you know, we thought we had industrial control malware. And um, it turns out it really wasn't as bad as we thought it was. But then You know, um, DHS got involved and um, the DHS got involved. They wanted copies of the data. They wanted to send things off. And when you send data to the government, it's kind of like uh, it's a one way street. You're sending data to them. And if if they're feeling fortunate, they might give you something and they might let you know what happens. But most of the times it's kind of just like a black hole. Um, And if anything comes of it, they might let you know what happened down the line. Is it a
0: is it a stressful job?
1: Um, depending on what aspect or what jobs you or what job you're doing in security, like if you're a security operations analyst and you get a little bit of anxiety with having to deal with uh, angry customers, it could be very frustrating. Um, I know people who are, um, incident responders or they might be, um, they might otherwise be contractors or they might be uh, professionals that get set out to customer locations or flying by plane to new locations every single day of the week. And some of them thrive by that life and love being able to see new things and go to see new places. But uh, after a while, it could be kind of stressful, you know? Um, a lot of the time with my job, I. Kind of feel like, you know, I feel like my job is a little bit unique in security and that uh, I'm given a lot of freedom and uh, it's not too terribly stressful most days. But for your average analyst, you know, if until you develop a little bit of experience and uh, have a little bit of uh, experience under your belt, it can be a little bit stressful at first if you don't know exactly what you're doing or what the next steps are, you know. Yeah. So it's very important to stay cool under pressure. <laughs>
0: Yeah, speaking of, um, uh, you just triggered something there of not, not knowing. Um, I, as I understand it, there's a um, just kind of unresolvable tension in security between transparency and secrecy. Um, and, for example, how much information should you share with other people? Does it make the community stronger, you know, the, I guess the blue side, for everybody to share as much information as they can about their own defenses or should you, or should you, you know, keep something in your back pocket? I had a martial arts, uh, trainer once who said, you know, every Sifu keeps, keeps a few tricks up his sleeve that he doesn't teach. Um, is there something equivalent to that in the security world generally?
1: So there, yeah, there's two sides to that story or that's, uh, there's two coins, uh, or there's two sides to that coin. Whereas, uh, So sometimes uh, red teamers or penetration testers, as they're uh, sometimes called as well, uh, they might have their own custom pieces of software or custom implants or methods that they use for getting into systems that they keep a secret. Um, They might share them with clients and tell them how they used it to get onto a system. And they write up their reports. But. You know, amongst friends, like it's a secret, and I'm going to keep it safe. You know, that's my secret sauce. That's how I do it. Um, whereas the other side of that is, um, you know, in spite of what I said a, a moment ago about the government being a one-way street, uh, they facilitate something called uh, ISICs. So there's different, ver- you know, the different verticals like financial, um, industrial control systems, um, different. Uh, different verticals in our country they have these threat sharing programs to where um, it's kind of like a forum where you can say uh, we seen this threat or the government will say we've seen this threat out in the wild you might want to check your logs for it and you know maybe uh, one organization in that vertical will say we've seen this here's some file hashes um, just FYI if you see this be aware that this is probably something bad so um, threat sharing initiatives are a great thing um, Information security and IT conferences Where the red team will debut new tools That they just developed And they'll say here's cool new things that I'm using To get around these security problems And then the blue team might respond and say Here's how I'm finding your new your uh, new security tools And I'm going to tell everybody how to do it So it's a it kind of turns it into a game of cat and mouse When you're sharing all of this knowledge But um, at the same time you know, it's better to share this information so that both sides can improve themselves rather than just let it kind of remain a secret and keep it stagnant, you know?
0: Speaking of games, I saw uh, a reference uh, in something you wrote once to capture the flag. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about what, what, what's, what's that? I mean, I know, the, I know the, you know, playground game.
1: Okay, so in a lot of IT and a lot of security conferences around the country... Um, they have uh, CTFs, and these CTFs are just – they're kind of uh, challenges to test yourself. Um, they might be programming challenges. They might be, I want you to get onto the system, and I want you to find this file called flag.txt, and I want you to tell me what the hash is in it. You, know, you collect the hashes, or you collect the flags, and you get points, and you might get prizes. So there are a variety of different CTFs I've seen before where they could be – um, here 's a forensic image, and I want you to find the flag in it or here 's a file that I need you or here 's a uh, executable I need you to reverse engineer it and get it to spit out the flag and you know it might be a program that uh, the flag 's a hidden function that doesn 't normally execute, but you debug it or you mess with it enough, and it 'll print the flag out so They're kind of uh, these interesting little challenges that uh, you can use to better yourself. And uh, one of the more common ones that I recommend um, is a set of CTFs called Over the Wire. Um, You can easily Google for it, uh, but it's a kind of introductory – set of challenges where they'll say we need you to find this file that's exactly this size and it has this many lines in it and you would go and say well what program can I use to sort through this list of files to find you know files that meet this criteria and you know there's introductory challenges like that and then there's the crazy complex stuff where um, like the FireEye Flare challenges that they do yearly the FireEye the malware company where they'll say, Here's an executable, we want you to reverse engineer this and get the flag for the next challenge. And you can't access the next challenge until you get the flag from this challenge, and so on and so forth. So, uh, their exercise is kind of like that hands on training, kind of like building up a lab, like I recommended earlier, that um, they will make your head, they will grind you out, they will make you go crazy, they'll make your head pound, and you won't want to stop until you solve it. But there are things that will teach you a ton of information about different types of systems, you know, just even if you even if you never solve the challenge, and you have to read somebody else's write up, they'll teach you a lot about uh, security and computing in general.
0: Speaking of labs, I guess that's a good opportunity to move on to the subject of your book. Um, Could you talk a little bit about virtualization and what what a lab is and why why it's important to understand this.
1: So uh, virtualization is well, it's a relatively common technology these days. Virtualization is to put it in layman's terms it's essentially taking your computer and dedicating a set of resources off of that computer to run another computer or another system inside of it. So for example um, I run Windows at home I run Windows 10 and it has a hypervisor or virtualization software on it uh, called client Hyper V so I will start that up I'll say I want to create a new virtual machine and it'll ask me well how much how much RAM how much uh, CPU how many CPU cores uh, how much drive space do you want to give to this uh, virtual machine and I say uh, give it a core give it uh, a gigabyte of RAM and give it like 10 gigs of disk space and then it'll say, you know, what operating system do you want to run on it? And you give it like uh, an install CD or point it to a file that has the installation information on it and you tell it to go and it acts like it's its own computer. But it's, in you know, it's its own little virtual computer that's running inside of yours. And I use virtualization in lab environments to help me recreate customer issues, you know, with Hurricane Labs or to help me – uh test out new pieces of software that my boss might want to use and like he'll say i need you to set up an environment and run these two pieces of software and see if they can be integrated i'll spin up two vms i'll install the software and i'll try and get them talking to one another you know so it's very important for learning how to learning new pieces of software learning how to network things together Um, Virtualization is very, very convenient for trying to learn those hands-on skills these days. And what's a
0: hypervisor?
1: Um, A hypervisor is just a a fancy word for virtualization software. Um, So there are two types of hypervisors in that, like, there's um, bare metal hypervisors that are an OS uh, operating system that are just strictly dedicated to running VMs. And then there are hosted hypervisors that are, you know, these virtualization so this virtualization software that runs on top of uh, an operating system that's already installed. Like um, a popular bare metal one would be uh, VMware's ESXi, whereas a popular hosted hypervisor might be VirtualBox running on top of Windows or running on top of Linux or something like that.
0: Um, you spoke about air-gapped um... Systems earlier, um, and that reminded me of a question I wanted to ask about virtualization and doing it in the context of security and and forgive me if this is you know just a misguided uh question, but if you're say working with uh, a live you know um virus uh or some form of attack that that mm-hmm. hasn't been, for which there has been no defense developed yet would you use that in a virtualized environment on a normal machine? Or would you actually set up – would you would you use virtualization for that at all, I guess, is my first question. And the second one is, would you would you always air gap in those circumstances where you're sort of building a, an environment to test solutions?
1: So it's uh, interesting because the uh, funny thing about the book that I wrote is that a lot of the things that I do are really uh, – a lot of the things that I tell uh, readers to do are more focused towards building a malware analysis lab, kind of what you're talking about, where the ways to jump out of that virtual environment or to uh, jump out and attack other systems on the same network, I make it a point to say to disable those things. Like, um VirtualBox and VMware might have shared folders or the ability to drag and drop to and from like a virtual machine to your physical computer's desktop, and I tell users explicitly disable all of these things because, you know, if you're running if you're running malware, the malware could escape the lab, or if you're trying to uh, simulate a penetration test or attack a host on your virtual network. That way, those attacks won't affect hosts outside of that. So the idea of isolating or air gapping the network is pretty important, and it's something that uh, I recommend if people are going to run virtual labs. You know, Even if it's just for something as simple as testing out new software, if you keep that network isolated or if you keep it well controlled, then there's little risk to your other systems if you're... Just experimenting, or running malware, or doing just about anything,
0: and um, taking all your knowledge, you decided to write write a book about it. Um, it's a huge, huge book, um, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, very detailed. You I, at the end, you um, you talk about you know how many words there are and how many uh, you know screenshots there are and things like that, and it's it's massive and thorough. Um, and uh, you mentioned in your introduction that. There was a fair amount of shouting at the screen, I think, or at the process that happened uh, while you were writing it, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what form that took. That took. Oh you man! That's, that's, you know, there are a lot of. I mean, I'm I'm a shouting at the screen kind of person, but you know, writing books can be, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a journey.
1: It definitely is, and you know, before moving on, I'm going to say that uh, before I decided to write this book, I tried writing a book two other times, and you know, for various reasons here or there, either I couldn't progress it enough, or I didn't have a clear, like a clearly defined idea. You know, this whole book writing thing is very new to me, and I had no idea how I was going to do this. and you know, one day my boss at work asks, um, I'd like us to have some training material for our uh, level one technicians to, to work with. And do you guys feel like writing something? And, you know, that was all that it took for me to go off on this completely crazy direction and building a virtual lab. So a lot of my frustrations with the book is that you A lot of people who are in IT or in InfoSec think that they're masters, and then you actually try to teach something and document how you do it, and uh, the programs will throw curveballs at you that you didn't expect, or they operate in ways that you, like, huh, that's interesting. It doesn't normally do that for me, and you have to figure out why it's doing that weird thing, you know, like... uh, I, before I had started writing this book, I had never used uh, Microsoft's client Hyper-V for virtualization at all. And uh, it had a couple of unique problems that I ran into for getting networks to talk to one another or getting them to uh, communicate, uh, the VMs on different networks to communicate. And I had to do a lot of research and contact uh, Microsoft's TechNet forum for recommendations on how to resolve my problems and you know it's just uh, little things like that things not operating exactly how you expect them to where you're just i uh I, I was just like i've torn down my lab i've fiddled all of these switches i've set all of these configuration options and you're just not working for me and then your only recourse is to say okay you guys are my only hope please help me <laughs>
0: Um, and you had, uh, I, I, you actually, I think you rallied some troops around you. You had a fair amount of uh, assistance along the way, which is always, which is actually a pretty um, common feature of successful books.
1: Well, what's fascinating is um, when I was making the book, that I made it free, or I uh, made it available for free while I was writing it. And I mean, I've, I haven't seen that done ter- too terribly often. I'm not going to say I pioneered it, so. Um, but while I was writing it, I would make um, another portion of the draft available and I would put it up on my website and say, um, take a look at this. Maybe it'll help you. Um, if you have any suggestions, let me know. And people would say, uh, this isn't accurate or this page has a bunch of errors or somebody would say, this isn't this type of uh, virtualization software. You're a little bit confused. And you know, I, I learned something very quickly in that... Um, it's very easy to get people to give you recommendations on the internet. Uh, Uh (laughs) So um, I'm going to kind of segue a little bit here and say the hacker mindset is to use things in an unconventional manner or to go off the rails a little bit. And on the internet, it's very easy for people to give you feedback or tell you why something that you wrote isn't necessarily accurate or isn't necessarily correct and the way that I use that to my advantage is I put these these uh, drafts out there, and I would say, "Here's some free information. Let me know what you think." And I would say, you know, for every little bit of every issue or negative bit of feedback, I would say I need to account for that, or I need to improve this section, or maybe I should move these parts around. So, uh, over the course of time, I just kept snowballing the material, and. You know the reason why the book is primarily the reason why the book is six hundred pages is because I cover five different hypervisors in the book, and you know a lot of people said like why didn't you cover this one why didn't you cover that one I was like the book's six hundred pages now, man i can't make it any bigger could literally it won't fit in the binding if I print it
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, no, thanks for that story actually that's um that's a i think a relatively rare one in the Conventional self-publishing world, um, obviously, you know, Leanpub itself is, is is was built around the idea of publishing a book while it's in progress and getting feedback and iterating while you go along. Um, it's interesting though; it is re- it is rather rare for people to make it free uh, while it's so, in progress. And what they will do sometimes is um, make the price very low at the beginning and then increase it as the book increases in length and the certainty that it will be delivered um, increases as well.
1: So that was something interesting, and like like I had said before, I had never done book publishing. I had never you know being an author and writing some kind of tech, uh, technical book was something that I always wanted to do and kick it off my bucket list and I had no idea where to get started and originally, I was going to uh, publish with another company um, and they didn't accept the book and then one of my other friends who published for a separate company said you should try and do self-publishing and at the time I was like I don't know if I can handle that I don't know if I have the resources to do that and I'm pretty sure there are grammar errors all over this thing because in spite of English being my first language I'm terrible at it <laughs> so um yeah, you know, it was, uh, while I was saying, who should I go through for self-publishing? And, uh, one of my followers on social media said, you should try out lean pub. And another one said, you should try out create space. And I looked at them and there's no non-compete agreements between either of them to where, um, one side, you know, one side doesn't say if you publish with us, you can't go with the other. So it's just like, well, why not do both of them? And, you know, I, I, there was another uh, individual by the name of ray who recommended uh, lean pub to me because of the the model that you guys have where it's just constant improvement over time and if i had done things differently i might have considered doing it that way so i learned a lot in writing this book and i'd actually be really interested if you know at a security conference saying like this is what i learned about doing this <laughs> you know
0: yeah it's um it's uh it's really um if anyone is out there is is thinking of writing a book, uh, listen to some stories first. is something I would definitely say. And if there are people like you know what Tony's suggesting who're generous enough to talk about that process, it's it will save you an incredible amount of time and shouting um, to just understand that you know the experience you're having is probably not the first time in human history that someone's experienced that, and not the first time in the world of writing and self-publishing that people have experienced that too. And especially grappling, and, and you know, if your book is going to be very useful to people, it probably will necessarily involve uh, at some point grappling with something difficult and, and solving a real problem. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's sort of you know uh, what makes it useful to other people. Um, my last question uh, for you is a selfish one, which is I've seen that you use the character Kirby as your avatar uh, around the internet. <laughs> um, and Kirby is one of my favorite Smash Bros. Uh, characters to play, and I was just wondering if there's a story behind why why you use Kirby.
1: Well, um, I'm going to tell that, and, and uh, just you know, for giggles, I'm going to tell the story about why, why my book was originally named the Avatar Project. Okay. <laughs> just for funsies, too. Yeah. Well, uh, the reason I choose Kirby as my avatar and I like him so much is because. Kirby represents the ability to dynamically change to your environment. You know, Kirby sucks up people's powers and uses it against them, and I like that because it demonstrates the ability to adapt to changes and to adapt to difficulties. You know, Kirby doesn't just uh, sit down and take it; he learns from, he learns from his mistakes. He learns from. Um, you know, adversity and he overcomes it. And I know that's a lot to take from a little pink puff ball, but you know, that little pink puffball, you know, like has cracked a planet in half in some of his games. His, can wield a lightsaber can do, uh, do Kung Fu, all sorts of crazy things. And it just is, I, I think it's just an interesting character because it just represents, represents the ability to adapt to your situations. Now, um, the reason I chose uh, Avatar as my working book title or The Avatar Project is uh, based off of one of my favorite uh, video games, uh, XCOM 2. And uh, the long story short, you know, spoilers, but the game's been out for a few years now, is that uh, your soldiers are trying to prevent uh, an alien force from enacting a project that they call The Avatar Project. And The Avatar Project is... This alien being that is like the perfect culmination of human genetics and alien technology. And I thought, you know... The Avatar project sounds like an ideal book name because it's building a lab environment in your own image. I'm giving you the baseline to do it, and then it's up to you to recreate it in your own image using the knowledge that you've picked up since, you know, from us working on the book together, from mine guiding you and starting you off with that baseline. It's up to you to determine how your avatar or how your network is going to be built.
0: Uh, thanks very much for that answer uh, and for that uh, poetic uh, explanation <laughs> of, of, of Kirby. Um, that, that was fascinating. Um, and, well, thanks very much, uh, Tony, for being on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast and for uh, using Lean Pub to sell the PDF of your book.
1: I appreciate it very much, and I uh, am happy to be here. And I just hope that the book uh, helps somebody else out there. That's, you know I, I love to teach. I love to teach new things. So if you got something from it, then my job is done.
0: Thanks.